You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Music fans, guess what time it is? It's time for Modern Musicology. My name is Alan, and Rob Levy is here. Greetings, Mr. and Mrs. America and all the ships at sea. And Stephanie Seymour is here. I don't have anything as good as that. Hello, people. <laughs> <laughs> and this week, we are continuing our discussion of the music of 1983. This is an, a, a super-packed year of amazing music all that's celebrating its their 40th anniversaries this year and so we covered january through june in our last episode so this week we're doing july through december there is so much stuff going on in in uh, 1983 that we have to split it up into two different shows all right so before we jump into the second half of 1983 a few days ago i put out on our facebook page just asking for people to tell us what their favorite albums from 1983 are and we got some really great responses the first one we got is from my buddy joe monticello he's a phenomenal guitar player he's a teacher at school of rock above all that though he's just a super cool dude I, I absolutely love him i was in a band with him for a while and he's so much fun to to play with but he says and he responded basically exactly the way i thought he would he would respond <laughs> he says Def Leppard was the band for me growing up in the 80s. Pyromania had a profound influence on me and my own development as a musician. Lots of great classics in 1983, but Pyromania wins this easily. So um, Joseph Moore uh, piped in from my favorites of 1983, Soul Mining by The The, Infidels by Bob Dylan, Hootenanny by The Replacements, Texas Flood by Stevie Ray Vaughan. And, and I'm really glad he brought that up because you know what? We forgot to cover that. In, yeah, our, in, in last week's episode, we talked about Stevie Ray when we talked about the Bowie album, Let's Dance. And I was intending to get to Stevie Ray at the end of that. I think his came out in June. I completely forgot. <laughs> so thanks, Joseph, for filling the big mistake that we made. <laughs> <laughs> and my buddy James Higgins says, gotta go with R.E.M.'s Murmur, um, which I love also. That's oh, yeah. Jenny Bromley says the police synchronicity is on the top of the list of best albums of 83, but there are many, many more. And she is so right about that. <laughs> right. And uh, Kevin Eldridge uh, piped in off the top of my head, Cargo by Men at Work, uh, An Innocent Man by Billy Joel, She's So Unusual by Cindy Lauper, and Punch the Clock by Elvis Costello. Was Elvis on any of our lists? No, but I love that album. God, yeah. I love that Punch the Clock album. I actually was going to mention that and we kind of ran over. So, <laughs> okay. So thanks, Kevin, for another uh, fill in the hole for us. And then my friend Paul Moschella said uh, that he started listening to this week's episode on his way home. And now he has a dilemma as to what to listen to as he puts together his dinner for the night. <laughs> and he said, it's another great episode. Thanks, guys. We thank oh. you, Mo, for listening. Yay. Yeah, thank you so much. And thanks, everybody, for commenting. That was a lot of fun. All right. So how about we jump into the second half of 1983? Woo-hoo. Woo-hoo. 
to get us started off, there is one thing that we should have mentioned in last week's episode that uh, I kind of missed. And this is not necessarily the the music of 1983, but the way that the music was delivered and sold in 1983, and that is compact discs. They were invented and first uh, manufactured in 1982, but 1983, the first CDs were sold commercially in America. That's right. I actually have, when I discussed Paul Young, I, there's something notable about that. But yeah, yeah, th- cool. that's true. They were, they were starting to... Um, manufacturer and they are starting to gain popularity. Well, I don't know if they were gaining popularity quite yet. They were trying it, to it push took a it while. on us. Yes. <laughs> it took some time for them to catch up. And remember on. they came packaged in those giant cardboard yes. things. Like what a waste. Right. Because, and they were like, what was it? Like five inches wide or something. So two of them could slot down into one pocket of an LP rack. Yes. <laughs> and so <laughs> they were 12 inches tall because they, they matched and wrapped in plastic too so you know right (laughs) doubly secure so as we're talking about some of these albums in july asia released as their second album that's one of the first things sold in america on cd so we're starting to see this stuff trickle onto the market but since we're talking about july let's talk about some of the amazing music that's happening in july 1983 something something big came out july 1st what would be uh, cringeworthy and frightening to some is interesting to others. Wham! released their very first album, uh, Fantastic. It featured Club Tropicana as well as the um, seminal Wham! rap, which uh, truly remains a frightening bit of <laughs> pop music. There's a 40 Years of Wham! documentary coming out. Uh, Andrew Ridgely has gone through uh, his archives and they've gone through George Michael's archives and there is a lot of unreleased wham stuff coming we don't know whether that's demos or mixes on release stuff but that's coming on netflix that documentary so if you're a fan of wham i'm excited um, look for that that's very cool and it sort of changed everything because it sort of gave like suntan cool culture a thing instead of like oh we're in the clubs or oh we have makeup or oh we're pasty white look yeah Yeah, it gave we're like we're like suntanned and rich and good looking Right. <laughs> it kind of was like this consumerism of the 80s, like making a giant exclamation point in pop music. That's a good point. They're like the Miami Vice of pop groups. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I thought that. I don't know. That's hilarious. <laughs> All right. What, what else has happened in July? Yaz came out on the 4th of July with You and Me Both, which featured Nobody's Diary. Yaz, queen. Yes, Queen. <laughs> love her voice so much. I love Alison Moyet. She has a phenomenal voice. Yeah. Absolutely. And you know what's crazy is that this was like their second album, but it was also their last album, yeah. <laughs> which is so sad. Mm-hmm. Although she did go solo, so we we got more of her, but like, you know, kind of yeah. sad that this was, because I, I thought they were a great duet, duo, I should say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that record is greatly underappreciated. Um. It's not as good as the first one, but it certainly is very mm-hmm. good. Well, there is a one big thing that happened in July, and that's toward the end of the month on the 27th, the first album by Madonna. Yes. That I got to tell you, I did not like her. Me I neither. thought I was like flash in the pan. I was like, this is like style over substance. This is very thin fragile music that isn't going to last 
Agreed. So the 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 first couple of singles, Lucky Star and Borderline, I thought Lucky Star was awful. I, I couldn't stand it. But I gotta say, I Borderline started to kind of like really yeah. <laughs> grab me. It's such a catchy song. Well, they're all catchy, right? So Holiday, Burning Up, Everybody. I mean, these are songs that, you know, it's yeah. almost hard. It's impossible kind of not to like the hooks and the... In, yeah. Even though I wasn't a fan either. You're right. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I just was like a flash in yeah. the pan, but it wasn't. It really took me some time to appreciate Madonna. Mm -hmm. And and it was really, I mean, I don't think I loved a Madonna album until Ray of Light. And I was obsessed with that album. But it took a little time. And it was like maybe after the second album, when they released the Dress You Up video, that I was like, oh, okay, this is starting mm -hmm. to, I'm starting to get it. I'm starting to understand. Yeah. And this is the beginning of the producer making the record in the 80s that we'd see culminating in stock Aitken and Waterman later because you get Jelly Bean Benitez who pretty much makes Madonna huge um, mm -hmm. with you know taking these tracks and really flushing them out and sort of taking that sort of Motown pattern of cranking out a, a, a record as fast as you can and releasing it and boom it's out right um, I'm with you I don't love Lucky Star Borderline I still think is fantastic just yeah. because it's got some interesting chord changes and progressions and stuff in it. When you look back at that whole first album, it's an album with a couple good singles on it, but it's not a whole complete album, but it's significant because it, uh, it's the beginning of Madonna, which is important because one, she's Madonna, but also what Madonna does to MTV. Um, it is, mm -hmm. the, it's, it's one of the few instances, I think the first biggest instance of an artist manipulating MTV for their own record sales and sort of driving what they do with Madonna. So you've got Madonna who's got a really polished record. She's got really polished videos. Then she's got really polished um, sort of stunts and things that she does. So everything is coordinated and polished and planned and it's all packaged. And you, This is the beginning of that. Everything you have now with Lady Gaga or even earlier with Katy Perry harkens back to Madonna. Yep. Mm. Huge influence. Yep. I want to go just back one week because she that came out on the 27th, but on the 22nd, so that's actually five days earlier. Sorry. <laughs> I can count. Paul Young's No Parlay album came out. And I'm just, I love him so much. I was such a fan. I went to see him when this album came out at the Ritz, which was like so great. He was huge in the UK. And I mean, he did gain popularity here, but he was like number one in the UK album charts and it stayed in the top 100 for 119 mm -hmm. weeks. I mean, he was huge. So yeah. you were talking about CDs before, Alan, but th so this was um, th interesting because when they put the CD version of this album out, they actually put an extra track on it because it could fit. Yeah. And five of his 11 songs like were extended versions compared to the album version. Right. Right. Yeah. The CD changed everything about, yeah. and you know, the cassette kind of did too, because you didn't, you weren't constricted to the 22 or was it 25 minute side of an LP, you know, yeah. you, you didn't have that time constraint and you could do a double length cassette if you needed to, but the CD, yeah. you know, you didn't have to worry about side one and side two. You didn't have to, you know, everything could just flow in one continuous thing. It took a long time for some artists to stop thinking in terms of side one and side two and right, just make one complete. That. Yeah, exactly. And you get things like come back and stay on the CD that would come out later in the U S and other versions. And it's interesting yeah. too, because he's sort of a throwback to like the white soul. He's a white guy, but he's a throwback to the Northern soul soul singer. 
definitely in pop music. He's got a Joy Division cover on there. He's got a Marvin Gaye cover on there. He's got a bunch of Jack Lee songs on there. Yes, so, he's a great interpreter of songs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so the, the songs that got picked and covered on this record are great. I listened to this thing incessantly on cassette on my way to high school. Mm-hmm. Um, the other side was Humans Lib by Howard Jones. Oh, yeah. Um, so like this record, this record was huge. I bought his his videos, VHS, Kids Ask Your Parents, <laughs> when it came out later after his other albums. And Love of the Common People was really catchy. He caught two waves. He caught the wave of like revival in sort of like white boy soul. We kind of talked about this earlier with Wham. He caught that wave. Then he kind of wrote on the tales of the two-tone stuff because he's got these songs that are kind of reggae influenced a little bit you a know, little bit and his props to his backup singers maz and kim who were session singers but they yeah. they like sung with like jules holland and tracy ullman and stuff but they really gave his band a unique sound yeah because he's got love of the common people he's got tender trap you know he's got yeah. those things on there that are little reggae-ish. kind of little reggae kind of influenced by the two-tone scott thing but then he's got like these Great, like wrenching songs like Broken Man, which is still fantastic. Wherever I lay my hat. Mm. You know, but he's got some really solid things on that record. And it's, I think it's one of the most groundbreaking records of the early 80s, just because it really opened up the door later for Simply Red and some of these other folks coming down the line, you know, just sort of like white soul singers. It really broke down a lot of boundaries. And then I guess I will throw in, um, I don't know where to go here. I will go with uh, Good For Your Soul, the third album, Boingo Boingo, Mm. which has got sweat. Who do you want to be today? I was absolutely gobsmacked earlier this month when I found out Danny Elfman turned 70. I know. So happy birthday, Danny, if you're watching. If you ever want to come on the show, you're more than welcome to. But, you know, Oingo Boingo kind of was always this sort of weird, fringy cult band. And this is kind of the rise of them getting a little bit more mainstream attention. Because after this record, they're kind of starting to show up on soundtracks. Or they're starting to get, like, played at parties that you go to. And they're kind of like the cool band, the coolest band nobody's ever heard of. (laughs) And their artwork's interesting. They're just strange and bizarre. But that that record's just... um, Still fantastic. Well, we got to talk about the rise of speed metal. Metallica releases their debut album. Yes. Man, it is a hell of a way to kick off a career. It is. I mean, just a crazy album. Kill them all. Seek and, Seek and Destroy is still a, a Metallica classic. And yeah. there's so many other great songs on there. The, the Four Horsemen is uh, one of my favorites. Phantom Lord, just crazy stuff. I remember when this came out because it was like a merge of like the hardcore scene kind of embraced the metal scene and the metal Mm -hmm. scene kind of embraced the hardcore scene. And this was one of the albums that really, Mm -hmm. you know, people were digging. I remember because I was really into the hardcore scene and it was like, oh, who's this Metallica, you know? Right. And I I also want to mention the the song Anastasia, which is an instrumental written by their bass player, Cliff Burton who would not be around for too much longer, unfortunately. And he was such a driving force in the band at the beginning. I'll super just quick mention Joan Jett and the Blackhearts uh, with their album, Album. Yeah. (laughs) It's their third album. I, you know, this wasn't a huge commercial success for them, but I mean, I think it went gold, but it, it, and they had a couple top 40 hits, but I Mm -hmm. just love this album. There's so many good songs. There's so many great 
great tunes everyday people tossing and turning fake friends the french song i just love that yeah. song mm-hmm. i love playing with fire which is a great runaways re-recording and her i think her version is so much better than the original oh, i absolutely I love it it's got some it's got a heaviness to it yeah oh i love it yeah and who else who played on that album our friend ricky bird yes he did <laughs> yes he did and you can listen to ricky's interview on our podcast on right. i think he's episode number 71 that's right yeah. so go check that out so i do want to mention two quick things uh one we talked about this last time we, we gathered in that, you know, there's this huge sort of Scottish indie thing going on uh, in the early 80s. And there's a lot of really great music coming out of there. None of it has really hit the quote unquote second British wave into America. But then along comes big country. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And the crossing. Yeah. Because they've got in a big country and people are like, wait a minute. What is this? Yeah. Like Huge. literally radio stations did not know. It's like, are those bagpipes? No, they're not. They're guitars. They're How guitars. Does this, <laughs> right? How does this happen? There were literally, you know, it was just, it sounded so unlike anything else at the time. And then Fields of Fire behind it is also what a like, really song. strong suit. Just a fantastic. Yeah. To think they had like no sense on that. It was like guitar. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And just production wise, great. And people forget that that band musically was just really tight. Right. They were. Their, dr- yeah. their drummer is fantastic. Just a great band, and sadly, yep. you know, Stuart Adams had passed away, but just still an amazing band. Uh, that's a great debut. Uh, also, I want to talk about um, Bauhaus, Burning from the Inside. Mm-hmm. It was their last record until uh, 2008, and pretty much they make the record. They're going through it. Peter Murphy gets ill, so he's on, like, I think four tracks. He's like, okay, I'm done. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm done. So then David J., Daniel Ash, and Kevin Haskins have to finish it, so they finish the record and the, the process of finishing the record really just makes them all sour on being in Bauhaus and that's the end. But you see the germination there of what would happen with Peter Murphy's career later. Also, you see sort of some of what's going to happen with Tones on Tail and Love and Rockets mm-hmm. all on this record um, in 1983. And it's kind of all over the place. Um, it ends really nice on a song called Hope, but it could have been a really terrific album if they had all been in on it it's it's kind of a case of like this band imploding but they owe the record label an album Mm -hmm. so it's kind of like finish at all costs kind of a kind of a thing with an album so thought that'd be a good way to end the month all right well i guess that leads us into august my birthday month that's right (laughs) happy birthday 1983 steph i turned uh how old did i turn in 83 17 (laughs) Oh, that's a great year. It was a great year. So uh, can I start off with An Innocent Man by Billy Joel, my friend Billy Joel? You going to talk about a Billy Joel album? Me? What? Shocking. (laughs) I love An Innocent Man. I think it's a great album. It's sort of like a concept Mm -hmm. album because it's like, this is, he said, this is when he felt like a teenager again because he, he was divorced from his first wife and he started going out with all the supermodels. He (laughs) went out with Elle and then he. And then he broke up with Elda to go out with Christy and marry Christy Brinkley. So, so he was writing like doo-wop and soul tunes kind of. Yeah. So each yeah. song on it, it was like an ode to a certain type of, of sound or song. Mm-hmm. Um, and he had a million hits from it. He had like two Grammy nominations, but each time he was beaten by Michael Jackson. Thriller. <laughs> well, you know. We should say I beaten know. at the awards, not physically. Beaten. <laughs> physically beaten up by Michael Jackson. <laughs> 
And I gotta say, I just don't care for much of this album. I think really? the title track is fantastic, but like Uptown Girl, Keeping the Faith, ugh. ugh. I just think all Sorry. that stuff is so dreary. Yeah. Uptown Girl I'm, is great because it harkens back to these Frankie Valley kind of records in the 50s, but the rest of it's kind of schmaltzy and I just don't. I disagree. <laughs> disagree. Strongly disagree. It's okay. <laughs> but that's okay. Friendship's intact. Friendship's intact. We, are, we love each other. Okay. Right. The Longest Time, one of my favorite songs ever. Keep going. Go ahead. Okay. Fair <laughs> Rob <enough>. is cringing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. But it's like the title track just seems kind of and it just doesn't seem stylistically to fit in with the rest of it you know mm. and and i really love it i think that's a great song you know not one of my yeah. favorite billy joels but it's a good song mm -hmm. i dig it tell her about it no thank you okay <laughs> i know tell her about what you know yeah what is Moving it we're on. Supposed to, no. what exactly are we supposed to tell her about oh yeah the fact it. that this record is pretty pedantic hey now sorry keep going yeah. so um I will throw this in an interesting direction. Um, that year and that month, Robert Smith made a record called The Glove, yes. and it's fantastic. It's kind of an unheralded record in, in some circles, but Steve Severin from Susie and the Banshees and Robert Smith formed a group called The Glove, and um, it's pretty great. Was that? Well, I'm thinking of The Creatures. The Creatures is Susie. Yeah. yeah Susie right. and, and they, okay. their album came out in Earlier last week's episode. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. okay, right. <laughs> came out last week. Exactly. Yeah, it's, yeah, because the glove is Steve Severin. It's right. um, Robert Smith. And Robert you know, Smith, yeah. Yeah. yeah yep, For, yep. I mean, there's other people play on it, but yeah. Yeah. And it was just kind of like interesting because it was like this sort of like goth super friends record. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> Wonder it, Twin Powers activate. You know, the glove right. sort of the glove sort of helped that and that creatures record earlier that year sort of really helped along with the Bauhaus record that a, a, another a Depeche Mode record that year sort of really helped perpetuate this idea of like goth in, in pop music and stuff. It kind of came out of the caverns a little bit and yeah into into more mainstream music. I think after that we should talk about Huey Lewis in the news because it really fits well. <laughs> sure. I mean that's a that was a biggie. The only reason I'm mentioning it, I mean, everyone knows, I, well, if you listen to this podcast, you know, I, I, I didn't really like them at first. I mean, I, I thought they were schmaltzy and whatever, but yeah. I have come over the years to appreciate their talent very much. And I think, yeah, sports was such a huge record when it came out. And a little tidbit that I didn't really know, but um, I want a new, new drug became the focus of a lawsuit with, remember what Ray Parker Jr. did Ghost, Ghostbusters? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so he he was accused of plagiarizing that song for, mm -hmm. for Ghostbusters, but um, I think they, they settled out of court. But, uh, oh, and then he later sued Huey Lewis because Huey Lewis talked about it on Behind the Music. So there was like a loss, another lawsuit, <laughs> countersuit. <laughs> that's wow. awesome. Yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah, breach of confidentiality. <laughs> anyway, I, it was a great album. There was some, they're a really super talented band and just being being such a diligent bar band for so long and practice, practice, practice really made, you know, for some great music. Mm -hmm. So also making this weird, that month saw the 35th album 
from Mr. Herbie Hancock. <gasps> uh, Future Shock, right? That's the album with Rocket. Rocket, oh, yeah. Rocket really changed things because first of all, it's an instrumental. Then it's an instrumental that sort of now has huge shades of electronica in it. Also mm-hmm. hip hop, you know, sample culture, oh, jazz. Yeah. So it's it's a jazz electronic hip hop record from yeah. Herbie Hancock. And it influences so many other people mm-hmm. down the road. And it's Herbie Hancock, who is an American institution. You know, this this thing was getting played in places that Herbie Hancock records were never getting played before. And it really opened up the doors for not only him, but to sort of have this renaissance in his career, but also a lot of these sort of like more funkier jazz and soul players were getting a lot more attention. I also think that there, there's some albums that they're not, it's not the same year, but like Art of Noise and like you, we were talking about Malcolm McLaren in another episode, like they yeah. all kind of combine all this kind of stuff and mm-hmm. magic, kind of magic happened, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, I did, I did want to bring that up. Plus, you know, yeah, it's 1983 and he's done 35 albums. <sighs> That's not, <nuts>. you know, <laughs> it's almost awesome. as many podcasts as Alan has. <laughs> God. <laughs> Hey, man, at least I don't have as many radio shows as you do. (laughs) Only two. Only two. Well, okay, I'm going to jump in with um, one of my favorite bands, Heart. Yay! August 20th put out Passion Works, and this is is kind of a transitional album for them. Um, It is the last album on Epic Records. They had done their first five from like 75 to 1980, and then... 1982 private audition was a flop i mean just a complete bomb passion works did a little better um they actually got more play on rock radio than they did top 40 uh how can i refuse was the first hit and then they had allies which was uh, written by jonathan kane and that one did okay that one did pretty well you know but it wasn't what epic wanted so epic was like hit the road heart yeah and that's when Capital came in and swooped them up and sent them to the hairdressers and <laughs> and got the stylist to make them look like glam rock. And they came out with a self-titled album in 1985 that had a lot of outside written material and it was very contentious, but it burned up the charts in a big ass way. But Passion Works is the album that's kind of like a, a stylistic transition for them. They're they're moving away from the folky hard rock from the 70s and into just like straight ahead, four on the floor, four minute rock songs. Mm-hmm. And and it's a good album. It's a decent album. It's, it doesn't rank up in the top half of my heart best ofs, but it's a good album. It's got some great songs on it. There's one song called Johnny Moon, which is, is written sort of about this kind of their reaction to Lennon's assassi- assassination. Oh. And it's a really interesting song. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a decent album. It's you know, not their best effort, but it's very, very decent. Yeah. It's very, very, very decent. (laughs) (laughs) Also that month, you know, you get a couple of things that are kind of passively interesting. Um, You get XTC and Mummer, their sixth record. Um, Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, it's different because Andy Parker's moves to Swindon and starts making records kind of at home rather than in a studio, which is kind of interesting. You get the Chameleons and um, their first record, uh, Script of the Bridge, which sort of helps kind of get the Manchester ball rolling a little bit more again after the demise of Joy Division. And you still have New Order kicking around and such things. Um, those two records. And also Cabaret Voltaire and mm-hmm. The Crackdown, which um, 
is a really, really fantastic electronic slash industrial record. It does some really interesting things with electronic stuff. It's 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 harsher than Kraftwerk. It's definitely got that working class Sheffield thing going on, but it also has like these big sort of loud clanging soundscapes in it that I think will foreshadow some of the stuff you get later coming out of like Belgium and some of these other cities doing industrial music. I should say that there were, and I don't want to go into detail about these, but there were two bands that became big hard rock bands that put out debut EPs. So not even full albums. And that's Rat and Queensryche. So 83 sees the launch of those two bands, which are going to go on to do incredible stuff. Nothing incredibly noteworthy yet in 83, but once those two bands start really hitting the pavement, buddy, they tear it up. Buddy. That, buddy. That, that segs well into my uh, a pick for mine for September for, for okay. Molly Crew because yes. Shout at the Devil came out. And so that was their second album. Yep. And it was their, it really was a huge breakthrough for them. I mean, the first two weeks, it sold like 200,000 copies. I love this record so much. I, I have the picture disc and it's so awesome. Oh, nice. I, I love all this whole record is so great, but Red Hot is one of my favorite songs. Too Young to Fall in Love, Shout at the Devil. Ugh. Anyway, they there's some pretty funny stories from from this time. Well, <laughs> their whole career has funny stories, but when they were on tour, well, first of all, they actually talked about replacing Mick Mars at this point because he was a little bit older. Yeah, but um, I think it was Ozzy's bass player that decided, that said like, "Don't broke, don't fix something that's not broke," you know. So they yeah. kind of convinced him to keep. Mick, which is sad because whatever, but they just wanted somebody a little more technically proficient, I think. Mm. Um, but there's some crazy tour stories. Like when they joined Monsters of Rock, they <laughs> Vince Neil bit Eddie Van bit Eddie Van Halen. And at some other point, Tommy Lee bit Malcolm Young. And both of those guys were ex- like obviously pissed at the and one of them thrown at the tour. Also, Tommy Lee got into a fight with David Lee Roth on that tour. So they were like expelled from their hotel rooms. The bands were like telling the promoters that they want Molly Crew off the bill, but they couldn't take them off the bill because they were so getting so popular. Mm-hmm. So what the the agreement that came to be was that Motley Crew would enter their trailer upon arriving at a venue, a crane would lift the trailer up so that they couldn't get out of their trailer and cause havoc. And then they had to immediately leave the venue after the show. And they would also be required to leave, uh, to, uh, Doc McGee had to leave a $15,000 deposit for any hotel God. room before the band you know, was allowed to stay there. I mean, well, so they were bananas. They were already going off the rails. And they were, they were already a controversial band at, yes. and at the beginning, but then they put out a song called Shout at the Devil and yeah. it went bonkers. Like people yeah. were terrified of them and burned records and threw bibles at them and all this kind of stuff and i mean it was it was crazy well their whole that record there's like the pentagram is the cover you know exactly and that's why a black album with pentagram right and that's what led to some of the burnings it was Mm -hmm. like you know you're you're you gotta put put the devil in his place kind of thing um yeah i remember that was a big deal yeah in the midwest at the time like i don't think people realized that when motley crew broke it was like a big shock thing yeah, were, oh, huge. I mean, there were plus the way they looked. Like, yeah, yes, people were like there. people were freaking out about Motley Crue. They thought they were the Antichrist. Right? Just think about that video, like right. fire burning. They're in their leather. They're in their makeup. Their hair. It's like it's totally you know that, that you're right. It was so shock shocking. 
It was it was exactly the reaction that Kiss got a decade earlier. For, but for, you know, everybody had gotten so used to the Kiss and the Alice Cooper and all that kind of stuff that you had to do something more shocking than that to get any kind of reaction like that in the early 80s. Right. And they got it. <laughs> I want to say I, I, one of the bands I used to be in covered Bastard, which oh, is yeah? such a fun song to play. And I also want to really quickly <laughs> mention their cover of Helter Skelter. <gasps> yes. Not one of my favorite covers of Helter ah. Skelter. There, there are 8 billion covers of Helter Skelter and yeah. Cruise is not one of my favorites. <laughs> but it's, it's not it's bad. Right. Yeah, no. it's pretty good. But I want to, that, that leads me into two other hard rock bands that released big albums this year that were big transitional albums for them. The first one is Black Sabbath. So in last week's episode, I talked about the live album that came out where the band was kind of at odds with each other and Ronnie James Dio was out of the band. And then he went on to release his first solo album. Well, to come from that, Black Sabbath releases a new album called Born Again on September 12th with Ian Gillen from Deep Purple as the lead singer. And it was a weird album. It was kind of strange. The The cover was just terrible. And it's got, it, it just doesn't have some of their best material. There's a couple of songs like Digital Bitch and Zero. I mean, even just saying the title Digital <laughs> Bitch is, just sounds stupid. And it wasn't a, a bad song. And Zero the Hero was pretty good. And the title song was pretty good. It just was not a great album much mm -hmm. less a great Black Sabbath album. And the other one is Kiss. They are in absolute free fall. Their career oh. is in ruins. And they had come back in 82. They came back with an album called Creatures of the Night, which was a phenomenal album. And it, it was a return to their hard rock roots. It was really, really strong material. And it was a great tour. But they're, they had destroyed their own career so badly that nobody gave a shit so they had to do something drastic to get public back to them and they took off the makeup and they did the big reveal on mtv oh and they released the first album with no makeup lick it up and great album one of the one of the i think from the 80s it might be the best kiss album and yeah. i mean it's a it was a hell of a way to kick off their their ne the next phase of their career and Man, it's good stuff. I love that mm. album. I was in a I was in a project a couple of a couple of times where we did a tribute show to Eric Carr, who was their drummer at the time, who died of cancer. And the second one that we did, we did on the anniversary, the 30th anniversary of Lick It Up. Oh my God, that was 10 years ago. I just realized. Wow. And we so we played like four songs from Lick It Up. And man, those are good songs. Just yeah. incredible. And it was so much fun to play live. So two two hard rock albums that really were important that year. One of them was great. One of them was not. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Black Sabbath. I will jump in uh, with just very briefly, uh, Labor of Love from UB40. Um, oh, yeah. Red Red Wine was everywhere in 1983. Mm -hmm. It was so everywhere, in fact, that I still remember it now from the trauma. <laughs> But it sort of launched UB40, you know, as a, as a pop band. And it also begat this, like, sort of brief run of, you know, reggae hitting the charts and stuff. So there's that. Did you just say begat? Yes. Nice use of the <laughs> word begat. I, I just want to say, I hated Red Red Wine. Really? I hated that fucking the song. The first two or three times I heard it, I'm like, okay. And then it's like, please stop. Right. And then yeah. they released the I Got You Babe. 
Ugh, with Chrissy Hine. And it's like, oh my God. But then they did this really cool video for Don't Break My Heart where he, he's in the video and he's doing the lip sync. And all of a sudden it sounds like, you know, he's by a jukebox and you hear the record skip in the video, which I thought was really clever. And so mm. you hit the jukebox and it fixes the record. Oh, that's I cool. thought that was clever. Yeah, that's But cool. they're not clever on the records. Um, <laughs> also, we talked about this a little, a couple of minutes ago. So I'm going to back rewind it. And uh, Into Battle with the Art of Noise, the very first uh, release from the Art of Noise, we got close to the edit and uh, Beatbox and some of the stuff from them. We talked about this a little bit, but that's that's yeah. where it starts. And you mm. see Z ZTT Records from Trevor Horn really yeah. taking off as well. Totally. Mm. Uh, also, I guess I lied because I'd have one quick mention too for about X, More Fun in the New World came out. And it, this was, you know, they did have a decent hit with Breathless. Um, but I really like that album. I mean, I, I must not think bad thoughts. Such a good song. The new world. We're having much more fun. There was a lot of good stuff on there. Anyway, X. All right. Well, I think that we're coming into October and holy Moses, October is an enormous month. So I think we need to take a break right about now. Gather our breath, you Compose. know, like, like, you know, build up some momentum for go into the, the biggest month of the year. And uh, we'll be back in 30 seconds to talk about October. After a long wait, new Doctor Who is on its way. We're gearing up to celebrate the 60th anniversary of the show with a brand new doctor. Let's welcome Shudi Gatwa as the 14th doctor. Um, no. Shudi is the 15th doctor. David Tennant is the 14th doctor. Wait, wait, wait. I thought David Tennant was the 10th doctor. Okay, I'm confused. Confused? Well, your friends here at the Earth Station Who podcast are here to help you through all your Doctor Who questions. Check us out wherever fine podcasts are found. All right. It is... October 1983, the month kicks off with Bowie had just released earlier in the year, Let's Dance. He now comes out with the, the basically the soundtrack movie for the Ziggy Stardust concert film, which was obviously shot years earlier. Um, and that was a that was a pretty decent release. It's a great album. It's just about to get a re-release for its 40th anniversary, um, obviously this October. And it's going to have the full concert on it, which was had never really been released before because Jeff Beck makes a guest appearance and his bits, uh, including a Chuck Berry cover, were cut out of the film and the original album release. So the new remastered version is going to uh, replace all that stuff and it'll be an intact show. And I can't wait to get that. Cool. Ooh. Right. The, the giant thunderstorm that shook the world of 1983 and people freaking out as much as Motley Crue did, uh, made people freak out was the, um, the, the second culture club record colored by numbers. Yeah. Because at this point people thought with, do you really want to hurt me in time clock of the heart? And that those were kind of like, okay, it's a novelty act. We get it. But then comes, you know, a whole string of hits church, mm -hmm. uh, church of the poison mind and Carmen mm -hmm. chameleon and miss me blind. Uh, miss me blind. And he's everywhere. You can't get away from Boy George. This explodes. And with that sort of is the yin and yang of the Motley Crue thing. I mean, the same people that are upset about Motley Crue are also upset yes. about Boy George. Also, going back to that white boy soul thing, Boy mm. George has that down pretty well. What a beautiful um, voice he has. And they really blended a lot of different musical styles well. 
1983, you know, it's sort of you sort of see this Duran Duran versus Culture Club thing come along where people are like, well, you can only like one, you know, it was, it was very silly. It's, it's, it's Star Trek versus Star Wars all over yeah. again. <laughs> exactly. But on the music charts. In a musical way. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So dumb. And also, so speaking of like Cindy Lauper, uh, she's so unusual. Really, really just she arrived on the scene, you know, with her shocking, beautiful orange hair <laughs> and her amazing songs. Girls just want to have fun. Money changes everything, which was that was yeah. Prince, right? Prince no. cover? No. Oh, that no. It was a cover Sorry. of I can't remember who. Hold okay. the phone. I will find out. All right. Yeah. Right. And she was when she you was... were mine, right? Was the Prince cover. When you were mine was the Prince yeah. cover. And, and I loved her version of it. Oh yes, I do too. Yeah, that record had tons of hits on it. Hits. She's she's on wrestling. She's everywhere. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, money changes everything was a cover by of the brains. Okay, okay. And I think her I think her cover is really good. You love I it. I love it. And the way she made videos work for her as well is really yeah yeah. And talking about controversy, you know she she bopped her way into you know people wanting to ban her record and all this kind of stuff how dare you sing and i think it was because it was a woman doing it how dare a woman yeah. sing a song about that yes yes you know good point yeah mm -hmm. i mean anybody who had sung that song would have been controversial but i think it's because it was a woman yeah i mean I don't, women don't sing that, stuff that, like that's that. for sure yeah exactly yeah. not supposed to so yeah, that that was um that was a huge, a huge major record, and then John Mellencamp came out with Uh Huh, yeah, which is another like ubiquitous album of that time. Pink Houses, Crumbling Down, Authority Song. I mean, just every time you turn on MTV, there he was. Right, play guitar. I think Pink Houses is a great song. Mm. I, I I didn't really care much for him. I, I um, I'm going to jump back to 1982. I saw Hart on the Private Audition tour. That was the album that had done so pathetically badly on the charts, and it was at a time when there was a huge recession going on. But so concerts were like not selling tickets, and there were like half houses, you know. But Hart, uh, I think it was October of '82 when that show happened, and it was a full house, mostly because this new kid called John Cougar Mellencamp was opening the show and he was just getting really uh, hot. So cool. after his set was over, like a fourth of the audience left. <laughs> wow. That's right. Shocking. Cause nobody, nobody knew anything about that new heart album that had flopped so badly. Yeah. But so that was my first time seeing JCM <laughs> was, you know, owning, owning a room when heart was at their down point. Mm. And he had this attitude of like, why the hell am I opening for these people? They should be opening for me. <laughs> he had the attitude is really just he had all the, you need to he did. He is a attitudinal young man. Yeah. And he still is as an old man. That's right. <laughs> so I'll jump in with, uh, we, I know we talked about uh, a live album, but uh, also a compilation album from that year, The Jam and Snap. It put... <sighs> all their stuff together <laughs> in one giant place yeah and if you were buying vinyl back in the day it was big and heavy and yep. it was like wow and you, you know you saw the jam and you're like what is this these guys look cool it really changed a lot for for a lot of kids 
It was great packaging too. You're right. That was such a, I mean, it was just like, wow, this is fantastic. That's the year we got soul mining from the, the, which is still a masterpiece. Mm -hmm. And this is the day is in like everything Mm -hmm. from, you know, real genius to the new guardians of the galaxy movies. (laughs) Well, speaking of live albums, Pat Benatar put out live from earth, which was, um, it was sort of a, a stopgap measure because she is like, super hot at this point and uh chrysalis records is wanting to put out as much stuff as they can and a live album is an easy way to get another product on the market while when you're not quite ready to go back into the studio yet but it did have two new studio tracks on it love is a battlefield and lipstick lies which was not released as a single but is a great song i love it so much the the most notable thing about this to me is that on the tour that this album comes from, they had a new band member, Scott Sheets, the guitar player had, had left and they had, they replaced him with a keyboard player and one of Stephanie's friends, Charlie Giordano. The interesting thing about this live album is that the addition of a keyboardist replacing a guitar player changes the sound of their older material in really interesting and drastic ways. So it's fun to listen to, you know, things like Fire and Ice to hear a keyboard solo in the middle instead of a guitar solo in the middle. And, it, and it's, it's just the way that it changes the sound of the band is yeah. really interesting. That's a good point. Yeah. Uh, it's not necessarily the biggest thing uh, in, in the entire world, but Head Over Heels by the Cocteau Twins came out, mm. um, which... You know, when you listen to that record in 1983, you were like, what is, what is she saying? And when you listen to that record now, you're still saying, what is she saying? <laughs> Having said that, her voice is just phenomenal. And it's, it's you know, you get Sugar Hiccup on there, which is great. Um, and Mooset and Drum, sort of two seminal Cocteau Twin songs. And you really sort of see the 4AD label kind of begin to take off and do its own thing. Also, we I, we haven't mentioned this, which I, it kind of surprises me, and I'm the last person that thought I would bring this up, but I believe this is the month that uh, everybody was dancing on the ceiling, right, with Can't Slow Down? Oh, my God. Um, which I know. I know. It is not, <laughs> it is by all means not one of the records that I particularly love or I particularly enjoy. Having said that, in terms of commercial circles, 40 years on, People still love it. People still buy it. You've seen Lionel Richie step into his own as a solo artist. Friggin' Hello was like everywhere. It was like painfully <laughs> Oh annoying. my God. That and that funny. dancing on a ceiling, until Susudio came along, it was perhaps the most annoying <laughs> song on the radio. Oh God, Susudio. Jesus. I should mention it. It's not necessarily a record we all love and care for, but it is very important also because it really opened up a lot of uh, pop charts for African-American artists in the top 40. The promotions for that album, they sent us a life-size standee of Lionel Richie. He's standing in a, like a, like a forward looking pose with his feet kind of like planted firmly. And I told my boss, we have got to hang this from the ceiling feet (laughs) feet up, you know, so he's like facing down his feet are on the ceiling. You have to do it. And she's like, she wouldn't let me do it. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. This oh, is the most perfect. perfect. I know. I have one of those in storage oh, wow. somewhere. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, we put it on some guy's lawn. 
at two thirty in the morning. We set it. We went to his house and opened the screen door and set it there. So when he opened the door the first thing in the morning, <laughs> and he eventually gave it back to me, and I've got it somewhere put away. I can't remember where, but um, they promoted the daylights out of that record to the point of yep. uh, of nauseam. Well, I was just going to mention Pipes of Peace. Oh, yeah. Yes. I, was, I knew you were going to bring that one up. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, just to, that that was, you know, on the last, it was released in the last day of the month. So, of course, Say, Say, Say was also everywhere you went and turned on MTV. And, mm -hmm. you know, I don't know. I, I like that album. It's not great, I don't think, for me, but it, it's... Like, I like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's okay. Yeah. It's a perfectly fine McCartney album. I didn't get a chance to do it in last week's episode, but this week I'm going to give the prog report. Oh. Dun, 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 dun. Exactly. Uh, two bands that were big prog bands in the 70s are trying to adjust to the 80s, and they come out with two hugely successful albums. The first one is Genesis, and that was... Um, in October 3rd, and it is an album that I have very mixed feelings about. There's some absolute dreck on that album, like <laughs> That's All and Illegal Alien. I fucking hate Ugh. Illegal Aliens so much. Yeah, that's hard. There's a song called Silver Rainbow, which is okay, but it's just, ugh. But then at the same time, it's got a song called Home by the Sea, which is phenomenal. It's sort of like a ghost story, sea shanty kind of thing. And the opening track, Mama, is one of the darkest, coolest things Genesis has ever done. It is still one of my favorite Genesis tracks. So I have very mixed feelings about that album. It's an album called Genesis, cleverly. Clever. Yeah. And then... The beginning of November, Yes releases 90125, which oh, yeah. the title comes from the catalog number that was assigned to it. And it is a huge album. And it's one of those that we were talking last month and I can't remember. I mean, last week, I can't remember which band it was that we were talking about. Like when you when you say a song title, the general public thinks one thing, but people who really know the band don't think that thing at all. And that's the case with Yes. When you say you know, when you're talking to just the general public and you say, oh, it's like something like yes. And they think, oh, owner of a lonely heart. Well, mm -hmm. no, because owner of a lonely heart is nothing like yes. Right. <laughs> so this isn't really prog, but it's definitely progressing in a in a very new direction. Um, and it's a phenomenal album. I don't really think it's one of my favorite albums. There's a the side one is basically all the hit singles. Side two, though, is is one of my favorite sides of. A yes album it starts with an instrumental short instrumental called cinema it has a uh, our song leave it which was one of the singles and a really cool oh, that's song a cool yeah. song yeah it's super cool and then it closes with city of love and hearts those are two of my favorite yes songs ever so in the battle between 90125 and genesis 90125 is going to take it that tour was my first time seeing yes live uh, i think it was in 1984 and it was the 90125 tour. And, you know, I'd been sort of accumulating little bits of yes as I was going along from a greatest hits album. And, of course, hearing Roundabout on the on Top 40 radio when I was younger, which just still just blows my mind that stuff like Roundabout was ever top 10 on 
pop radio. And then uh, a couple of years earlier, I had completely fallen in love with Tempest Fugit from Drama. I just loved that song so much. So I was primed and ready to become a hardcore Yes fan. And I saw them on that tour and it was a just an amazing show and it totally sealed the deal from that point i went back and started collecting all the old yes albums and you know absolutely love them never never looked back since then so that's the prog report there is not jack shit going on with prog <laughs> and the prog bands are kind of leaving prog behind to fit in with this sort of new wavy 80s and they're trying to find their footing it's amazing that they have these incredibly successful albums doing something that isn't really appealing to their long-term fans and isn't really fitting in with a lot of the other stuff that's happening in the eighties, but they managed to make it work somehow. Yeah. The early eighties was such a time of, you know, new wave and all, you know, alternative, yeah. like everyone who wasn't that was trying to do something to fit in. So yeah. 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 Rush changed their sound drastically at this point as well. So it, all the prog bands are kind of like mm -hmm. not knowing what to do. So we're in November now, yeah? November. Well, I would just like to point out that Eurythmics released their second album of the year. Mm -hmm. And it's an amazing album. It's called Touch. Yeah. Um, it's actually their third album, but this was the second album released this year by them, which is with, which is chock full of hits. Here Comes the Rain, Right By Your Side, Who's That Girl, went to number one in the UK. Here it went to seven on the Billboard Top 200, but... This album was made in just like three weeks in London in their in church studios. And it's just, it's such a great album. And to follow it up from such an awesome, you know, album that, that really made them mm -hmm. huge. It's, it's pretty incredible. What a year for them. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, I have to mention that the album closes with their questionable cover of David Bowie's fame. <laughs> yeah. oh my god oh well <laughs> there's there's a number of bands duran duran is another one that yes you know from did. that from this generation that do a cover yeah. of fame and yeah. duran duran's is terrible god yes. i hate I'm not it crazy about that either yeah, yeah. so stay away from fame people don't cover it don't cover it speaking of duran duran yeah seven and the ragged tiger i know great yeah. album under I think it's underappreciated. I agree. I do too. It's the it's the first album by them that made me like a single because I loved New Moon on Monday. It made me really like mm -hmm. go. Real good um, I was like, oh, this is really interesting. And then I just sort of really dug the album artwork and some of the the stuff on there. And um, yeah, yeah, that was kind of like my dip in the pool for Duran Duran. But New Moon on Monday hmm. is fantastic, and they just kind of ignore it. Uh, but it's. Such a great track. You know, it's it's weird because I think the band felt like they were at a low point. You know, they it's like they were, first of all, well, Andy Taylor and John Taylor were sort of like really into coke at this point. And they were also kind of struggling over writing material. Mm. And they, so they, they, and they were trying to change their direction too. I mean, they were kind of going more in a synth pop kind of dancey driven thing. So, uh, and, you know, it wasn't a commercial, I mean, it wasn't a, a critical success, but it was, of course, a huge commercial success. And they mm -hmm. had like, they did a massive tour for it and they had a, they had a concert film from it and a live album. Oh, yeah. So, you know. Yeah. And, and the reflex was enormous. And partly because they released that concepty 
concert clip for it, I thought it was a great song. And I think yeah. that that really got people wanting to see what this band would be like live. Yes. I also want to say that um, I was I, I, I struggled with the Duran Duran thing. I never really got on board with them. But the thing that really sold me on them was Union of the Snake. Mm. Yeah, I too. love that song. It was a great song. Oh, man. So this was the last studio album with the original lineup until uh, they yeah. put out Astronaut. Yeah. The original lineup, which is Andy Taylor, John Taylor, Roger Taylor, Nick Taylor, and Simon Taylor. <laughs> oh, what I'm full of stupid of jokes. What are the three-fifths of your band who are a Taylors that are no relation? <laughs> right. What are the odds? <laughs> is everyone in Birmingham named Taylor? <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. I want to mention... I guess I'll th I'll, this will feed in nicely for a, a segue, I think, that Steph can riff on. Sizzy and the Banshees released Nocturne, their live album. Yep. Which, uh, you know, again, another big year for, for the goth kids. It still holds up as a live record. It's really, really mm -hmm. interesting. It was recorded at the Royal Albert Hall, which for Susie's, you know, like Susie Sue, and she's playing that, you know. Yeah, that's but you pretty get, cool. You get the live version of Dear Prudence. You get um, mm -hmm. a really great live version of uh, Helter Skelter on there. Yeah, you get some really cool stuff on Hellbound, right? I mean, of course. Yeah, oh, and yeah, Israel, yeah. you know, which they've been closing the shows on now. So it's a really, really, really great record. And the thing about it, too, is that it sort of just kind of came together. It wasn't really planned. You know, they had done some done some stuff during the year. And it's like, let's put out a record. And Robert Smith is on it as well as the guitarist. Well, speaking of live albums, and this is probably something that Steffi will want to, to talk about. And that is U2. Under a Blood Red Sky. Oh my gosh. What a yeah. great live album. I it mean, really is. There's so many, there's so many live albums that I listen to and I'm just sort of disappointed with. And this is not one of them. I mean, this, I feel like <laughs> you could feel every, every emotion and every, it was like you were at the show, basically. It yeah. really made people know who they were. Mm -hmm. A lot of people, this is the first U2 thing they ever heard. Yeah. So, mu so much of their early stuff, I think, works much better live than it did in on the original recordings. Like Sunday yeah. Bloody Sunday is made to be played in front of an audience. Yep. You know, it's made to get those people worked up. I mean, it's the so electric, good. like elect electrical, like you know, I mean, that's just like <laughs> it's okay on the album, but like it's great live. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So Eleven o'clock TikTok. Oh yeah. And of course, Gloria. I mean, if of you course. if you're if you see them live and you see, see them do that song, it's just like the place goes bananas because it is so powerful and emotional. I want to say also how much I love the album cover. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, man, that's good stuff. Yeah, that was really that was that's actually one of my favorite live albums. I would have to say, Undercover by the Rolling Stones, not their best, but it's yeah. a Rolling Stones record. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a there's a few that we should maybe should just mention, and that's like First Offense by Corey Hart. Yes, which was it was an offense. Yes, it was. <laughs> Rebel wow. Yell by Billy Idol. That was a huge album. Huge. I saw them on that him on that tour. I was great. Yeah, Strip by Adam Ant. There's yep. a lot of stuff going on this month. And um, one of my favorite bands of all time, Split Ends, had um, conflicting emotions out. Mm -hmm. And one of the best songs they ever wrote was on their message to my girl. I just love that song. And that was actually, this album was a little bit sort of when I would say the genesis of crowded house might've come about because they, they, they replaced no, their drummer, Noel Crombie on a, 
on a bunch of songs with a drum machine. And so mm-hmm. before they, they went on tour, they, they advertised for a new drummer. Cause I think Noel was like pissed and he was just like, I'm done. So that's when they got Paul Hester in the band. And that's sort of like, you know, two thirds right there of crowded house is Neil is Neil and yeah. Paul. So yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we mentioned her name earlier. So I will say that Tracy Ullman put out her first yes. album. <laughs> you broke my heart in 17 places. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> I love her. She with songwriting cute. with songwriting credits from the late great Kirsty McCall. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, that's right. She did. She did a um, Blondie cover and a Doris Day cover. I think she did a Blondie cover on that record. But yeah, there's a Doris Day cover on there too. December. I don't have much going on in December. There wasn't much going on in December. I have uh, the Cure Japanese Whispers just because it was sort of like yeah. three singles with their B sides all wrapped in one, but it got them a lot of lip service in the states. Also, the amazing kamikaze syndrome from Slade because Run Runaway was like a fantastically great bit of throwaway disposable pop music that no one paid any attention to. But now it's kind of like a cult record. It was the very short-lived attempt to revive uh, Glam with mm. Slade. And it was all over MTV. Run Runaway was everywhere on, on yeah. MTV for a while. Um, and I think, and Alan, this is where I'll throw Alan a curve. I believe that's the year that Bark at the Moon came out. It is. Which, which was yeah. everywhere. And I was going to say that this is a big month for hard rock, for metal, because you have um, Accept puts out their fifth album, Balls to the Wall, Ozzy with Bark at the Moon, and Slayer does their debut album, Show No Mercy. And Slayer fucking changed the game. As much as Metallica did a couple of months earlier, Slayer really like sort of took that Metallica thing and took it one step further. And the two of them just changed everything for, for the way people thought about metal. That's another album that I was like, true. So true. Cause I was, you know, really into hardcore, like I said, but when you heard like Metallica and Slayer, it was like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. I can get with that. <laughs> yeah, that's all I got for December. Yeah. All right. Well, look at that. That's that wasn't hey. too bad. Uh, that was a, an hour. That's not too bad. Yeah. All right. So that brings us to the end of 1983. My God, what a Oof. year! That was a jam-packed that was, year. That was exhausting. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Two weeks of that. So, ah! Man, but it was so much fun to relive all that stuff, though. Yeah. I mean, it brings back so many great memories of just. Uh, yeah. When we were teenagers. <laughs> well, some of us. <laughs> some of us were already. When Rob and I were teenagers. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, so do we have any picks of the week this week? You know, the, there's an inter- We talked about the Cocteau Twins earlier. Uh, Robin Guthrie did a record years ago with this band called The Velt. Remember them, yes. Steph? I-, I loved the Velt. Yes, and we so, played with the Velt. So the really? everlasting Gobstopper has been re is is out. Um, it's been remastered, reissued, re released. It's out there in the world. Cool. Go check it out. Also, uh, this week um, I saw Love and Rockets this week. Oh yeah, that's right. They were absolutely fantastic. Kevin Haskins is an amazing drummer. It was just a an hour and. 30 minute clinic on drumming and percussion. They've re-released Sweet FA on, but on vinyl, because it never came out on vinyl, but they've released as a companion to that, uh, My Dark Twin, which is a two disc collection, outtakes and songs and things from the Sweet FA recordings. Oh, uh, cool. Genesis P Orage is on it, but they've got some other stuff on there as well. They recorded Sweet FA 
and the place they were staying at in Los Angeles caught on fire and all their equipment and all the recordings got burned. So they had to re-record the record. Oh my God. Yeah. Ugh. So, um, so that is out now. It's fantastic. And it's amazing. Also, I have been looking for this for ages and I, I, I don't know where my original copy went. But um, we, we've talked about them a lot this week and last week. The Eurythmics in 1983 were kind of very much in the beginning process of working on the 1984 film project for the film with Richard Burton. Oh, yes. And I found the 1984, long out of print Eurythmics 1984 uh, mm -hmm. album. And uh, I highly recommend that if you can get it. It's Man, not it on any so streaming good. services. Yeah. That thing is, there's a lot of it's instrumental. But yeah. even her just humming and stuff on it is just neat. It's it's fantastic. Yeah, um, but it it has a couple of phenomenal songs. Um, like double plus good is amazing. Mm -hmm. Yes, it I is. Love that song. Yeah. Um, Sex crimes is fantastic. Mm -hmm. yeah. Julia is gorgeous. That was a single too, I think. I think so. Yeah, I'm sure it was. But Sex yeah. Crimes, holy shit, I love that yeah. song. Yeah. Cindy Wilson from the B52s has a solo album coming out. What? Yes, she and does. A track. She has a track on it called Midnight. It's amazing. Also, Tracy Denham from Baritalia. They're from England. They're going to be big. And because uh, we are in the midst of Pride Month, I would be remiss if I did not mention that Jake Shears of Scissor yeah. Sisters has a brand new solo record out. Love that. It yep. is. It is. That whole thing is just fun, man. Mm. That is like, it's the closest thing to a new ABBA record we're going to get for a long time. But it's called Last Man Dancing. It's. It's fantastic. It's awesome. just, it's really good. So I can't wait to hear it. I'm, I'm very much looking forward to that. Yeah. All right. So since we talked about 90125 just a couple of months ago, as in 15 minutes ago, um, Yes has a new album out called Mirror to the Sky. And it came out a week and a half ago ish. And I am, it's from the current lineup, so it's, you know, not as going to be as, as good as the classics. And I'm really, really wanting to like this album. And they're, it's just putting up a fight. It's not making it easy <laughs> for me because I've listened to it all the way through. I don't know how many times and I'm having a hard time having these songs stick in my head. And uh -huh. it should not be like that. Now, I will say that um, the first single cut from the stars is decent. The second track, All Connected, which is a nine-minute song, has some really classic moments in it. I think there's some real, you know, sounds like classic yes in at least some of the song. Um, the title track, luckily the title track, I think is the best song on the album. Um, and it is a 14-minute song, Mirror to the Sky. And it's got some really interesting stuff going on. It starts out with an instrumental bit and it has a builds up with a big orchestra at the end. So it's... Eh. I'm still working on it. I'm still trying to get it in my head and, and, you know, kind of like get mm -hmm. used to it. Um, I think it's better than some of the stuff that this lineup has done uh, in the last few releases. So, you know, I'm, I'm expecting that I'll like it at some point, but I'm not quite there yet, which just breaks my damn heart because yes, is one of my favorite bands ever. And, and I want to like it. I want to say it's a great album. I want to support it. And I'm just struggling with it. It'll, and maybe it'll just grow on you. You have to. It will. It, it will. Yep. Yeah, exactly. All right. So that's it for this week. Thanks, everybody, for listening to two whole episodes about 1983. 
let us know what you think about this. Let us know what your favorite releases were from 1983. Um, we hope to hear from you soon. You can email us at modernmusicology1 at gmail.com. Or you can just leave a comment anywhere you see our posts or where you listen to your podcasts. So we will be back next week. Rob, where can people find more about you? So you can find out more about me on the needcoffee.com podcast, Weekend Justice. I'm on Twitter, the, the Book of Face, and also on um, a couple other social media platforms as well. And um, you can listen to uh, my radio show on Louder Than War Radio. It's called Antics. Uh, it is Mondays from 6 to 8 Greenwich Mean Time, uh, which is uh, noon to 2 Central Time, 1 to 3 Eastern um, every Monday is also archived on their stream. So you can listen whenever you want. Um, just go to louder than war radio, look it up, Google it. You can check it out and listen to it. And then on uh, Wednesday nights from seven to 9 PM, I host juxtaposition on KDHX in St. Louis. Uh, all of those shows are also archived. So if you are, um, desperately trying to find a hyena, you can, um, listen when you come home. Uh, maybe you're grocery shopping, maybe you're doing the windows, maybe you're sleeping. I don't know. Uh, there's a lot going on on Wednesdays. Shopping. Yeah. You know, maybe you're shopping for a hyena with yeah. your aunt Frida. I don't know. Um, there's what something the going hell, on, dude. but you can, uh, listen to, uh, the show from seven to nine central time, kdhx.org archive for two weeks, new music, old music, sometimes Steph's records and her husband's records. Yes. And, um, lots of other stuff that, uh, people don't play. So, Steffi, I want you to tell us where where people can find you. And I, this is a specific request because we got an email this past week from a good uh, friend of ours and a regular listener, Bill Lemon. Um, and he wrote in because he was having trouble finding your song, There Was a Time. So I sent so him, nice that Bill wrote such a sweet thing. I know. I sent him a couple of links uh, to the video and to the Spotify and all this kind of stuff. And he wrote... Thank you. I love the song, the music, the performance. I'm left wondering what the song means. Has Stephanie, this is to me, has Stephanie told you? I really can't help wondering. So I thought that instead of me responding to his email to tell him what you had said about your song, why don't you tell us what your inspiration was for There Was a Time? I will. And Bill, that was such a nice, so nice that you were, your words mean a lot. Um, the song, it was, I wrote it about, um, it, it actually was just inspired by my remembering um, Eddie Van Halen and Valerie Bertinelli's relationship in the 80s. It was sort of, and, and the 90s, I mean, it was sort of sparked by by Eddie Van Halen's passing, and I was so sad about it, and it just, I it brought up a lot of memories. So I kind of wrote that song with them in mind. So that's what that's about, and you can find it. Like Alan was saying, you can find it on Spotify and all my music you can find on Spotify. You can find me on Bandcamp just under my name, Stephanie Seymour. You can find me on Facebook at Stephanie Seymour Music. And you can find me on Instagram at there underscore r underscore birds. And thanks again, Bill. That was super sweet. He he concluded his email by saying that he has saved the the YouTube video to his favorites list. And he also says he clicked the like button and left a positive comment. He did on YouTube. So sweet. Absolutely. And um, you know what else would be sweet? If more people did that kind of thing for your songs and for Rob's projects and for our podcast. Yeah. So go check out our YouTube channel 
And, you know, if you find us on uh, Spotify or iTunes or wherever you listen, if you like the show, rate it, leave a comment. We would love to hear from you. So I have a platform called Cosmic Creative, K-O-Z-M-I-C, creative.com. And that's got some podcasts that I do, my Star Trek podcast, my Doctor Who podcast, and uh, some, uh, some books and stuff that I've written. So go check that out. We will be back next week. And next week is our 75th episode and we are going to do a live show it'll be broadcast on our facebook page and on our youtube channel so if you want to meet our co-hosts all four of us you can see us on june 25th at 8 p.m sunday night june 25th and we'll be doing our 75th episode live so we'll see you then everybody take care have a great week and keep rocking this has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek. <laughs>